This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The Israeli Defense Forces have reportedly carried out their first raids inside Gaza, which is only the start. We'll go in-depth on whether Israel's goal of wiping out Hamas can really be achieved. And with Gaza already experiencing a full-blown humanitarian crisis, how much worse is it going to get? Are things moving in the Actors Studio negotiations? George Clooney tells us the head of SAG-AFTRA is in the room waiting. And Hamas's call for a global day of jihad spooked a lot of people about some possible terrorist attacks. Do we take these threats too seriously or not seriously enough? We start with Israeli boots on the ground in Gaza, although in a limited way. Ben Hodges is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General and former commander of U.S. Army Forces Europe. Ben, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for the privilege. So let me ask you this, because this was a, a, a discussion that we were having before air in, uh, in the newsroom here. Uh, and it goes along these lines, that, that these uh, soldiers that are going in, Israeli soldiers, for the most part, are, are young. Soldiers tend to be, right? Uh, but without real combat experience, going into basically an urban setting and a very densely populated setting at that Gaza Strip. Uh, And in some ways, it almost brings to mind an analogy with uh, the young, uh, you know, recruits that Russia had going into Ukraine, and it hasn't worked out that great for Russia. Well, I would, I have a different view. Okay. I I think the uh, Israeli Defense Force is probably the best equipped and trained in the world for this kind of mission. I mean, they, they know that this is the type of operation they would have to conduct most of the time versus out in the open desert. They have a very large uh, training area just a few miles away from there, from Gaza, uh, where they practice, you know, going into a town and, and clearing it. So I, th- I think there's a level of training and experience that maybe is higher than uh, we, we might have anticipated. Plus, they have equipment that is appropriate to the task. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy or that they won't suffer casualties, but I think they've probably got the right sort of formation and equipment to do what they're going to be asked to do. As any warrior knows, no plan survives contact with the enemy. But we do assume they have a plan as for going in. This ground invasion looks pretty certain to happen at some point, perhaps uh, within the next hour, within uh, before the day is done, uh, before the weekend, who knows. But do you think they have a plan for what to do after, let's assume they succeed, they wipe out Hamas? What's their plan after that? Do they have one? Do they have an idea of what they need to do to clean up after themselves? So that that is the perfect question. Um if if I'm a colonel or a lieutenant colonel or uh, a commander inside the Israeli Defense Forces that's about to participate in this operation, you know, the, my question is what what is my uh, what is my job? What what is the purpose that I'm trying to achieve? Are we going in just for a punitive expedition? Um, how far? How long will we be there? Or do we envision an eventual occupation for a period of time? So um, this is always the most important question to be answered for any uh, military operation. What is the purpose? What is the effect that you're trying to uh, achieve? My sense is that, um, that 
the Israelis know that Hamas knows that the Israelis are coming. This is not going to be a surprise. And so the Hamas will have prepared a, a terrible reception for Israeli forces. Um, the Israelis, of course, they're not on the clock per se, like it's got to get done now, but they are probably prioritizing um, the hostages, well, but, but trying let, to find the hostages. Right. But, but let me ask you this, Ben, because uh, there has been some speculation, and let me throw this at you, that perhaps this is a booby trap for the Israelis, because after the initial invasion last weekend, there was a lot of speculation uh, presumably from, from informed people, that it was the first of, of a many more waves coming across that didn't happen. And it almost seems to some as if they want the Israelis to come into the Gaza Strip. And then the question becomes, we now know that they've been practicing this for at least several months, maybe even a couple of years. So what is their intent? The, I'm talking now about the intent of Hamas. Yeah, well, you're right. I think Hamas actually does want Israel to come in in a very strong, heavy-handed way. Hamas um, does not care anything about the Palestinian people. What they're looking for is opportunity to kill as many Israelis as possible, and, and they're willing to sacrifice however many Palestinian innocent people may lose their life uh, in order for Hamas to achieve their goal. So you're, you're right. I, I think they do want to see a large, strong, heavy-handed Israeli attack into Gaza, not only so that they can inflict uh, casualties, but also they know that this will uh, begin to undermine the sympathy and support that uh, most that much of the world has for Israel right now. So, so I, 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 let, me inter- Bill, let me interrupt you, because that's an interesting thought there. So is there a military situation, in your view, where it might be better— for the Israelis not to oblige them, not to do what Hamas is apparently trying to lure them into doing. Yeah, this this is the the issue. I, I think you've got the government of Netanyahu uh, that uh, he was in serious legal problems already, uh, and now his government has uh, on his watch. They have been embarrassed. They they were caught by surprise. And so here's an opportunity for them probably to try and wash their hands of this by launching a very, very heavy uh, strike uh, in hopes that uh, that, that can um, satisfy the, the anger uh, of Israeli citizens and help him stay in power. That's a terrible combination for uh, a strategic operation. So what should happen, what I hope will happen, and what I think President Biden and his administration have told the Israelis, like, look, do not overreact. Uh, the law still matters. No matter what Hamas has done, the American expectation is that Israel, as a dem- democratic nation, will still comply with international law. And um, it, obviously, we want to get the hostages out of there. And, and the Hamas knows how valuable these hostages are. Um, but that doesn't mean that Israel should go rushing headlong into Gaza Strip um, with a lot of collateral damage. So they, there is, I think, opportunity to do this with what we call tactical patience. All right. Thank you, Ben Hodges, 
is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General, former commander of U.S. Army Forces Europe. More on all of this when KNX In-Depth continues. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Still ahead, the Gaza Strip already in the midst of a humanitarian crisis after a week of intense Israeli bombing. So what happens when tens of thousands of Israeli troops start fighting on the ground? Right now, though, on yesterday's In-Depth, we talked with an analyst who had this theory. What if the Hamas sneak attack on Israel was not part of a broader campaign against the Israelis, but rather a one-off terrorist attack? Well, today, reporting in the New York Times suggests that there is a more coordinated effort underway, and it involves Hezbollah, Iran, and Syria, all preparing to let loose on Israel. Javed Ali is the former senior director for counterterrorism at the U.S. National Security Council. He currently teaches national security law at University of Michigan. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. So what do you make of the New York Times report? Could this be more coordinated than perhaps in the first few days we all thought? Well, I have been quoted in the New York Times myself uh, early um, on Saturday when the attacks started happening and in USA Today, and I, uh, with no insider knowledge, obviously having been on a government for five years, said even then that this attack, even though it is a dramatic escalation of Hamas's capabilities, to me suggests that there was at a minimum, a strategic level of Iranian support of the coordination, planning, and there may be even more operational or tactical support. And now we have uh, a Wall Street Journal article suggesting um, the same Washington Post and New York Times. How many of these sources are circular, we don't know. But there is a growing body of media reporting saying what I had said from the beginning of of the attack on Saturday. So, in other words, uh, you're theorizing perhaps a an idea of get Israeli troops to march into the area in a huge way, get bogged down in house-to-house, street-level fighting, and then something else happens and begins to split off Israeli forces or perhaps uh, overtaxes them. Is that the idea here? Well, I mean, I think that is one element or potentially one element of this multifaceted strategy, but I also think there were other objectives in even the the way the attack was launched in the first place on Saturday. Again, Hamas has never done anything at that scope level, complexity, and impact. And I think it was at one level sending messages from the Iranians, from Hamas, from Hezbollah on in terms of the capability. And now the second um, layer of objectives might indeed be to draw Israel into something that looks like Fallujah for the United States in the mid-2000s or or something even more nightmarish than that. And so uh, Hamas, I would have to think, and its partners have thought this through, have planned for an Israeli incursion, and now nobody knows how it's going to unfold. But again, my speculation, it's going to be brutal on on both sides and for all parties involved. You know, it it also raises the, the question again of the what appears to be a colossal intelligence failure, not just by the Israelis, but also by the United States. Because if there is some more level of coordination, and if Hezbollah, and if Iran, and if Syria are all playing some kind of a role in this, 
then how could it be? I mean, I get it that in the Gaza Strip, the U.S., for example, the Israelis, we don't really have uh, informers, or at least not what we may have had in the past, on the ground for a variety of reasons. But if you're involving other factions, other countries now, or factions in other countries, how could we have missed this? Well, just like what happened with us on 9-11, there must have been fragmentary indicators of something significant happening, but nobody had all the pieces to put together, whether on the Israeli side or on the United States side. I can tell you, though, from a a U.S.-Israel intelligence relationship, and I actually uh, was quoted in a long uh, sort of Q&A article about this in the conversation, that in that bilateral relationship, when both sides have very specific intelligence that that, um, suggests that there is a threat to the other side, that intelligence gets passed almost without hesitation. So if on either, in this case, if the U.S. had something that would have potentially assisted in Israel's warning or its ability to detect uh, the attacks uh, from Saturday, it would have been passed. So it doesn't look like the U.S. had anything. And I'm not sure that's a failure on the U.S. side. Our intelligence priorities have shifted out of the Middle East. We are uh, hyper-focused now on Russia, Ukraine, and China Taiwan and and other issues, and we have thinned out our military footprint in the Middle East, and we're not as invested there. And so, I mean, there is clearly blame here, but I'm just not so sure the the primary focus is on the U.S. And much like um, the U.S. did after Mm 9-11, Israel is going to have to figure out what didn't Right. Well uh, very, very quickly, there there has been some uh, reporting of some sources indicating that uh, Egyptian intelligence officials uh, gave a warning to their counterparts in Israel saying that there's trouble brewing and it'll probably come out of Gaza. Uh, there was a reporting uh, earlier today that I saw on my way to work that uh, U.S. intelligence officials said they saw trouble signs, something going on in the Gaza Strip and tried to warn Israeli intelligence is this our intelligence agencies trying to kind of cover their own rear ends because they missed signs, or is this not an intelligence failure as much as it is a political failure? Well, and again, this is unfortunately what happens sometimes, even when you have fragmentary clues, which may or may not have been the case here. I mean, it's hard for us to know on the outside uh, looking in, but had there even been these fragmentary clues passed from whether the United States or, or Egypt or any other a country uh, Israel has a partnership with, then, you know, what did Israel do or not do based on those fragmentary clues? And had they pieced the story together in a different way, could they have stopped it much like could we have stopped 9-11 had we understood what those fragmentary clues meant as well? All right, Javed Ali, thank you so much. Former Senior Director for Counterterrorism at the U.S. National Security Council. Uh, when we come back, we will turn our gaze to uh, the situation in Hollywood with sag after. But before we do that, some uh, breaking news here. Uh, Republicans have apparently chosen Ohio Representative Jim Jordan. Now, of course, he is a, a favorite of Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump. They have chosen him as their nominee to be the next Speaker of the House, whether or not Jordan will successfully get the uh, majority vote that he would need to become the next Speaker. But if he does become the next speaker. Of course, that would put him in direct line of succession uh, in the event something were to happen to the uh, sitting president and vice president to become president of the United States. KNX In-Depth will continue. She's uh, committed yesterday. She said, I'm going to go in there and sit there today, tomorrow. I'm going to be in the room to negotiate. I'm going to be there all day, every day, 
uh, to negotiate, and when they come in, we'll sit there, we'll fight, we'll argue, we'll disagree, we'll figure it out, and we won't leave until we get it done. Well, if you recognize that voice, it belongs to uh, actor George Clooney, who was uh, talking with our Natalie Tavidian today at a LAUSD event about, uh, of course, the ongoing SAG-AFTRA strike that has shut down mm -hmm. production in Hollywood, indicating that uh, Fran Drescher, who is the SAG-AFTRA president, is in effect prepared to, you know, go into a room, right, sit there. Read a and, book, maybe. Wait. Maybe yeah. maybe watch uh, reruns of The Nanny, right. for all yeah. we know, and wait until the producers come into the room and negotiate. But so far, there's no uh, indication that we know of that they intend to do that. So is there any hope for renewed negotiations? Kristen Lopez is film editor for The Wrap. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So does this mean anything that Fran Drescher is going to sit physically in that room and wait for the producers to go, hey, Fran's in there, let's go talk to her, or is this kind of a stunt? Well, we haven't been able to confirm anything with regards to talks being renewed, uh, We and we don't know to the extent to which, you know, she'll be involved, uh, but no doubt this is a in, this is an issue that we know she is she's very passionate about, rightfully so. Uh, and so it would not be surprising if she was going to start, you know, taking point and, you know, waiting for for AMPTP to come back to the table uh, and, you know, demand what what SAG-AFTRA uh, feels they deserve. Would it be a good or bad thing? for Fran Drescher to be there if, in fact, that is to to uh, happen. And I say that because uh, early on when she made that very uh, fiery speech when the strike began, she was given lots of credit, uh, and, and rightfully so in the view of many, uh, for taking the side of her membership against the studios. But then, as the days and weeks progressed, word leaked out, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing over at the uh, rap that the studios were turned off by that, that they didn't like being called the names that, in effect, she called them. So would she be really of any asset sitting in a room while they negotiate these very complex issues? I do think so, because we love a strong leader, you know, collectively so. And I think SAG, after it looks to her as as the person that is going to get them what they need. Um, so I do believe, you know, whether she physically is in the room or not, you know, they are definitely wanting her involvement. Uh, she's she's speaking to uh, truth to a lot of what the membership has been saying over the years. So I think that it would certainly, if anything, she's catering to her, the people that, you know, put her in that position. So I think she wants to look strong for, you know, her guild and, they're looking for a strong leader that actively is is supporting. I think you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If she was not part of this, I think there would be criticism of of her not being an active participant. So I think if anything, it only it only helps all the players involved that she is interested in being a a real part of the solution. Uh, quickly before we run out of time, uh, you cover film, so you you know the world, uh, you know the actors, what they're thinking. What does your gut tell you? Are we close to uh, it looks hopeless right now, but then all of a sudden they come back to the table and talks move quickly and we get a deal? Or is this talks are broken down, both sides are hardened in their positions, and this, could, uh, this is going to go into next year? 
I think that the WGA strike gave us a lot of of the playbook. You know, we we saw AMPTP kind of attempt to freeze them out by stopping talks. So I think that they're they're doing the same thing they did, and it would certainly benefit them to start renewing those talks. We're in the midst of award season. So there does need to be a lot of rapid movement to get award season underway, to get the actors in front so that we have a fruitful Oscar ceremony next year. It does not benefit anybody on both sides to prolong this, but if they're going to continue to play hardball, then they're the ones that are going to end up hurting the most. All right. Kristen Lopez, film editor at The Wrap. Thanks for joining us. What is unfolding and possibly about to unfold in the Middle East is uh, tragically not a movie. It's a humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip. It is about apparently to get a lot worse. We will have more on that when In-Depth continues. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The Israeli Air Force has dropped at least 6,000 bombs over on Gaza over the course of a week. So even before the ground invasion begins, uh, the plight of the Palestinians is, is not good at all. Supplies of food, water, power are limited. They are running out. Gaza hospitals totally overwhelmed right now. But now Israel is warning some one million Palestinians living in the northern Gaza Strip to quickly clear out because the IDF is coming in. How much worse will Gaza's humanitarian crisis get before this is all over? Youssef Manier is head of the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center of Washington, D.C. Formerly, uh, he was executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Youssef, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, of course, from the Israeli point of view, they're saying, well, you know, we're warning everybody to move because we don't want to harm uh, innocent people who are not uh, aligned with Hamas. And most of the people in the Gaza Strip are, are, are clearly not members of Hamas. Um, that's their point of view, to which you say what? I would say that that's not their point of view at all. In fact, they've been quite explicit uh, in their point of view over the past decade and a half of the siege that everybody in the Gaza Strip is a target of their policies. Uh, they've made that further clear uh, earlier this week when the defense minister called the population of the Gaza Strip human beasts, uh, where they were going to be cutting off water, electricity, and fuel, and, and supplies. Uh, Israel's policy towards the Gaza Strip is a policy of collective punishment, uh, and 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 that's it. There's no there's there's no discriminating between anyone in the Gaza Strip when you're denying everybody water, everybody fuel, everybody electricity. This is this is the policy to torture an entire population held captive and then periodically bomb them. But. Let me ask you, uh, with the activities of Hamas in this uh, attack on Israel and the pictures that we saw of uh, you know babies being uh, uh, murdered, uh, killed, burned, um, civilians being taken hostage, uh, reports that some hostages may have already been killed, uh, how does that help the Palestinian cause in, in Gaza Strip? How does that make life in Gaza any better? I will let you know that the uh, Palestinian struggle did not start this past week. Um, it did not start with these events. Uh, and uh, it, it began with an Israeli declaration of war against the Palestinian people in 1948. Uh, 
The vast majority of the population of Gaza are refugees from the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in that time. Uh, they have been forced from their homes, denied return, militarily occupied, besieged, um, and, and uh, now this. Over and over again, by the way, this is not the first war uh, that, uh, that we see uh, with Israel bombarding Gaza. In fact, it's happened many, many times over. Each time, the Israelis say uh, that they are going to eliminate the capabilities of Hamas, uh, and each time, Hamas proves that they have greater capabilities, and the will of Palestinians to support armed resistance continues. This policy is fundamentally bankrupt. It's not working. The issue here is a political one. It requires a political solution. Um, but that, of course, requires leaders with courage, not just power. Uh, but the Israelis have uh, preferred to deal with Gaza in the way that they're dealing with it, by locking all these people away, and then when it becomes an issue, just dropping bombs on them. It, it's, it's unconscionable. All right. Uh, let's go back to the, the, uh, what we were talking about in the very beginning, which is a humanitarian crisis that has, uh, I was going to say, un will unfold. It's already unfolding. Um, but will likely get a lot worse uh, if the Israelis do what everyone is suspecting they will do, which is to roll into the Gaza Strip. Um, let's talk about how you view the dimensions of that crisis. Well, look, there's there's over two million people uh, now who um, have no safe place to go. There are bombs dropping left and right. Entire neighborhoods have been turned to rubble. Uh, this is in a place where there are uh, now close to 2,000 dead, 6,000 injured, 600 of those dead are kids, 2,000 kids are in desperate need of medical attention, the hospitals are collapsing, there's no way to provide good care uh, for people without electricity, fuel, and water so that hospitals can be uh, maintained, um, and you know, the only messages that Palestinians are getting is, you know, move from one place to the other while all this is happening and there are no guarantees for their safety. There is no safe place in Gaza. The only way to prevent mass atrocities is to demand an immediate ceasefire. Youssef Monier is uh, head of the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center of Washington, D.C., formerly executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Coming up next, uh, how seriously did you take today's so-called calling of a global day of jihad when we come back? You're listening to KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Some of us might have forgotten, and some of you out in the audience might be too young to remember, but in the weeks and months after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, not only did several terrorist groups like al-Qaeda issue global terror threats, but there were plenty of actual terrorist attacks carried out in cities around the world. But it's been a while since those days. And so when Hamas issued a global day of jihad threat, many people were kind of rightly spooked. But should we be? Michael Downing served for several years as counterterrorism chief for the LAPD. He's now chief security officer of Oakview Group. Michael, nice to talk to you again. 
Hello, nice to talk to you as well. Thank you. So let's talk about that, uh, because I know you remember, and certainly Rob and I do, as I said in the uh, intro to you, that uh, people were really jumpy. I remember that, and, and everyone's nerves were on edge after 9-11, and every time somebody came out of the woodwork, regardless of whether they had any credibility and made some kind of a threat, everybody was jumping, police forces were going on tactical alert. It, it was just chaos. Um, and for the most part, for the most part, uh, bad things didn't happen on a large scale, certainly nothing equivalent to 9-11. Um, so how should we view these so-called, you know, global day of jihad threats now? I mean, that, yeah, that was a, a period of time where there was a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and uh, probably lack of confidence in terms of what to do. Um, I think there was a lot of prevention that, that did occur during that time. Um, I also believe, though, that our greatest adversary is complacency, that, uh, you know, there were there was leakage in 9-11, there was leakage in the Arab Spring, there was leakage in this Hamas-Israel um, conflict that we're seeing now. And uh, when fatigue sets in and people aren't as alert as uh, they should be, then you know bad things do happen, which talks about vigilance and why everybody needs to have some type of responsibility to to prevent, to look both right and left. And if there's something suspicious, report it and build relationships with municipalities and federal partners and not be over anxious um, or, or paranoid about it, but learn how to participate uh, in this world that we're living in today. After 9-11, we kind of we did learn some lessons, and that was, you know, we we didn't put pieces together. Uh, there was a lot of movement, a lot of coordination, a lot of organization behind those attacks. And now we, we kind of learned what to look for. And then after that, I think uh, everybody in the intelligence uh, agencies learned that uh, the danger from overseas terrorism became lone wolf terrorists who were inspired by calls issued by ISIS or whoever to carry out attacks on their own, and they did. And that's a lot harder to watch out for because it's easier to spot uh, an organization making moves than it is one person who just decides one day I'm going to get some weapons together and go make an attack. Was Hamas calling for a global day of jihad kind of an appeal to the lone wolf terrorism? And is that why it's a danger or is that just not something that's that's looking like it's going to happen? Well, I think it's aspirational for sure, but it does re-energize this jihadist movement, which seemed to be fall flat, at least in terms of the activity that we'd seen in the past. And for those that are disgruntled or have grievances, uh, perhaps it's inspiring to them to try to do something. So I think it's both. I think it uh, it inspires a, uh, a new kind of re-energized jihadist movement, perhaps, and also the lone wolf for uh, looking for some something to attack for the cause, which makes, you know, we have to be vigilant. We always have to ask the question, who is the adversary? What is the adversary's capability? And what is the adversary's intent? And you cannot just focus on one element of a threat. You have to look both right and look left and make sure that the one thing that we did learn were partnerships were key. Uh, partnerships between federal agencies, state and local agencies, partnerships between communities and police, um, and to build that trust up. And, you know, this type of crisis creates two things. It creates danger for certain, but it also creates opportunity to reinvigorate those 
relationships that we have with communities. All right. Let, let, let me, though, Michael, uh, take a, uh, for the moment, a more cynical approach to to uh, this issue of reality, uh, you know, perception versus reality and bounce it off you. We did a segment the other day on uh, the perception of crime versus the reality of crime. And while crime uh, statistics, for example, here in L.A., have been going down, the perception that people have uh, is that it's actually getting worse. And But that's not true. Um, so going back to these calls for jihad and threats and all that, and then we go on tactical alert. And, you know, there was a kind of cottage industry, for lack of a better phrase, uh, that grew up after 9-11. And a lot of people, you know, benefit from people getting very nervous about potential threats that may or may not happen. Um, so my question to you is, how do we as the public better able, how are we better able to figure out what's real and what's really just faulty perception? Yeah, there's a lot of aspiration here, um, but we have to listen to the state and local authorities on what the threat stream is, how credible the threat stream is. And today they're saying there's no credible threat to the homeland. However, what you also are going to see is a lot of demonstrations and protests. And within those demonstrations and protests, the lone actor players like to take advantage of that. So it depends on the environment as well. If we do what we're supposed to do and learn to participate in you know, reporting suspicious activity, developing good partnerships with state and local law enforcement and federal law enforcement, then it becomes more routine. But if we are complacent, and we don't participate, and we think that authorities and state and local police can take care of everything for us, that's just not true. They don't have the resources to do that. They need our help. All right, Michael Downing, thank you so much. Served uh, for several years as counterterrorism chief for the LAPD, now chief security officer at Oakview Group. That's going to do it for KNX In-Depth for this week. We'll be back Monday at 1 p.m.